Welcome to the Bartender Atlas Podcast. Hopefully you're isolating well. I'm Josh Lindley of Bartender Atlas, and on this episode, we're doing something a little different. Uh, The guest on this episode isn't a bartender on Bartender Atlas right now. Audrey Hands is a global ambassador for Havana Club Rum, but she also worked at places like Eau de Vie in Sydney, Australia, and Trailer Happiness in London. She also spent 10 years as a diehard capoeirista. More details on that coming up. Audrey will tell us a little bit about everything on this episode of the Bartender Atlas podcast. Okay, Audrey Hands, first question. Where did you grow up? Okay, so I grew up in London. I am half French, half English, and I went to a French school in London. Did you like school? I loved school. It was an interesting school. It's called the Lycée Francais Charles de Gaulle, uh, which is in the middle of South Kensington. And we were, when I was over there, we were 3,800 students. So it was a town. um, And it was interesting because you had to have thick skin to be able to survive. I was going to say, even going to a French school in London in, you know, uh, without giving anything away, the 80s and 90s, um, (laughs) even that alone would have been an interesting experience as a child, no? It was a very interesting experience. I think one of the things that, I mean, there were a few things that I realized growing up, which were very unique to growing up in that school. For example, I, I learned about racism very late. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what racism was. I didn't. I didn't really know how, the difference between like different religions. I mean, I knew that everyone was different, but I didn't know the the the, the rage uh, that you could have from racism and why and what it came from until quite late. Like you know, I think when I was ten, twelve was when I started learning about racism, and I was like, but I don't get it. Like why? Because I grew up in such a multicultural uh, primary school environment and then for example the other one that's really funny is when I started going to university I really I realized how difficult it was for me to speak in just one language because we would always speak in at least French and English um with like what we had a very lise slang uh which wasn't like the slang that you would get in England or the slang that you would get in France but it was very like our kind of international slang um, and we would always mix. And then, of course, because we would speak, like in my group of friends, we came from, uh, we're still uh, very close between the same group of friends I've had since I was three years old. Uh, we were, we are from six different kind of uh, backgrounds. So you have Egyptian, you have Iranian, you have French, you have English, you have American. Um, and we would have to also sing happy birthday in all of these language. And then, you know, like, for example, for me, I would say Habibi in a very normal way when I would speak to my friends um, and just using words from different languages in your day-to-day uh, conversation, which I had to strip away from my, <laughs> my, my, my way of speaking when I would speak to people. So even when I'm talking to you now, I need to think before I speak. <laughs> well, yeah. How many languages do you speak? I speak five languages. Five, five fluently, and then probably slang in five more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and so, kind of. while you were in school, as you were saying, very uh, diverse um, population of the school. What sort of extracurriculars were you into? Mm, so I did. Uh, I was. I was. I loved football when I was a kid. But then I got really angry with football because they started uh, creating the like kind of you know 
uh, teens and I couldn't be part of the boys team because I was a girl. So I kind of hated football after that um, and stopped very quickly. Um, and then we... We had this really weird thing on Wednesdays. You could do any extracurricular activity. It was half day and then uh, they had like these kind of things, uh, programs, I guess. Uh, And so I did a lot of horseback riding for some reason, even though I'm really allergic to horses. So you don't still ride horses? Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Just take an allergy Um, pill and break it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, and then I did gymnastics, but I did my back in very early. Uh, so I only did like a couple of years of gymnastics, which was very difficult. Uh, I did karate, uh, because my mom is a karate teacher. So she obviously put me into that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then in secondary school, so when I was 15 ish or 14, I started doing capoeira. Oh, wow. And that's what I loved because I could still do a little bit of gymnastics and my back wasn't too affected by that. That's amazing. And this was all in London? This was all in London. Yeah. And then you said you went to university as well. Did you go to university in London too? I did. I went to King's College London, which mm-hmm. was a big surprise to myself because I was not the brightest student at school. I was the cheekiest by far. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I would have often meetings with... Uh, the um, head to headmaster because I was always in trouble. Uh, but I was very lucky where uh, we had careers advisors um, in our schools and um, they actually saw potential in me and they said that I would be good at languages and arts and they said that I could actually apply to good universities uh, through languages and arts and that I would be able to travel if I did that. So I was like, wait, I get to speak different languages, which I already basically do, I get to travel and have fun and go to a good university. And they're like, yeah, basically. They didn't tell me that I might have to uh, study Don Quixote, but they sold it to me. (laughs) I mean, that's only a short book, right? (laughs) (laughs) I got away from it. I picked up another language to, to avoid studying Don Quixote. I ended up by studying my official degree, was Hispanic and Portuguese studies, and then I picked up Italian to avoid uh, studying Don Quixote. You managed to avoid Cervantes at all costs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And so along all this, you mentioned that horseback riding and, and early on gymnastics and then capoeira, which is amazing. When did you start your, um, your mindful stretching and your yoga practice? When did you start taking that seriously? Uh, so I used to hate yoga. Of course. <laughs> well, everyone does it for their first three classes, right? I mean, it's I, I I always thought of it. I mean, especially when I did capoeira, which is such a dynamic, such a a crazy culture, and it's a philosophy, and you know, it's um, it's sometimes even like a bit of a cult. You know, once you're a capoeirista, you're a capoeirista for life, and mm-hmm. you know they have the different types and everything. So I was really much uh, of a capoeirista, and I. I think I dedicated like about 10 years of my life to it um, and I loved it. And then I was actually living in Mexico, I think four, four years ago. And my um, sister-in-law, she was doing a teacher course, the YTT for yoga. And she, she invited me and I was like, me, meh. Okay, maybe I'll give it a try because uh, I couldn't find my style of capoeira where I live. So I was like, I might as well. And funny enough, the... 
the owner of the the yoga um, school where she was doing it, he was also a massive capoeira uh, practice or capoeirista. And so the first class I did over there, he had, I think, at least 10 uh, positions which were completely capoeira positions. And I was like, oh, okay. This is basically similar to capoeira. And there was, and he also did a lot of, I mean, it was vinyasa. So obviously it was much more of a flow where it's like, I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the first um, expansion or the first boom of yoga was hatha yoga, which is a bit more static and, you know, a lot more rule focused and everything. Whereas vinyasa is a flow. So basically it moves faster and there's a lot more kind of hand balances um, and, and core, which was, which is what I love. So yeah, then I started doing that. And then a couple, a few months after he told me that I, you know, uh, if I was interested, then I could do the the teacher course, and I had a bit of time, so I was like, yeah, might might as well. And I think what's really interesting about it was the fact that my whole life I was quite energetic, and I was always kind of full horns ahead with everything. I would never think twice about anything. Um, I was always really fiery. Um, I still am. Yeah, um, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people say I might be sometimes feisty. I don't know why. <laughs> and so it was good. It was. It's definitely something that I need, especially with the job, which demands a lot of travel, a lot of uh, events, a lot of you know craziness. It's it's good to have a bit of calm within the storm. So you mentioned that you didn't start yoga until you were in Mexico a few years ago. What brought you to Mexico in the first place? I I started with Pana Ricard um, a little bit over five years ago, and I was in Australia as the Havana Club and Tequila uh, Ambassador. So it was Altos and Avian over there. And then I did a year over there, and my contract and visa ended. Uh, so then I... Um, I had to leave Australia, and it was when I had a six-month period where a Hamana club contacted me, telling me that they would try and see if there was an option for me or an opportunity for me to work with Hamana club uh, international on a global scale. So we went through interview process, and then obviously um, they had to create the rule, uh, which would have been which was going to be based here and the visa and uh, again all of the agreements so for six months I had to lay low and keep quiet <laughs> um and that's why I was living in Mexico so the beginning and of I know your... that you love Mexico <laughs> love Mexico uh so then <laughs> the beginning of your yoga practice worked out as well as well as the uh as far as the uh keeping quiet and laying low yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, for me, it was impossible knowing that I had to wait for a few months so that we could go through all of the process uh, and knowing that I couldn't do much. So I I started doing yoga, then I did a couple extra like side jobs for fun more than anything. Going to get a little more into your work in a bit. Can you – I want to go back. I had no idea. I've known you for, what, three, four years now. I had no idea that you were a caporista. Do you want to <laughs> get into a little bit of how – there are different styles. I always just assumed it's, uh, you know, a, a dance slash martial art form, you know, like any other in that it's very specific into what its practice is. How how much variety is there? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's your podcast. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so capoeira, it's um, original. It, it, it originated uh, in Brazil as we had the sugar slaves who uh, had to disguise a form of combat via dots. Right. That's basically the story of capoeira. So uh, it's, it is definitely a martial art, uh, which is with music, accompanied with music, um, which is quite uh, kind of African-inspired. Um, uh, but and so a lot of it is basically it's not physical hitting like you would in boxing or, or karate, but it's more the dots. But the, they it is the practice of a fight. Now, uh, and you have two really big styles which uh, are called Angola and regional or regional. Angola is the first one, which is um, if you. If you see on some videos or if you see some people playing capoeira, the easiest way to really explain it is when it's very much more close to the floor, a bit slower. I mean, they are literally like the strongest core people I have ever seen in my life because like the control that you have to have. And it's, um, it's all about the arts and the philosophy and, uh, and all of that. So that was Angola, and it's really the, the 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 original, the OG capoeira. And then I think it was in the 60s that um, you had the Hijonal style that came in. I think it's Mr. Swasuna, who in, I can't remember his name right now, so let's not go into detail about this. But uh, <laughs> a Mr. Uh, kind of came in with this new style, which is much more upbeat, much more on your feet and much faster. And it's more combat forward, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have these two styles. And it was really funny because I obviously started in a school called um, Cordão Giuro, which is a very big school in Europe. Uh, his He comes from... Uh, well, he obviously came from Brazil uh, and moved to London. Um, and it's this style was called Miojinho because the idea was to be able to learn a little bit from Angola a little bit from Hegenal and, you know, to try to learn the best from both because obviously nothing is really perfect. Um, and it was really good because, uh, it, it, you know, we, we, we learned a lot about the philosophy as well as the speed and the self-defense, um, but also the fact that Capoeira at the end of the day is always a game. So you're not there to actually aggress your 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 the other team player you know you're there to play a game you're gonna enter into the circle as friends and you'll go out as friends but everything that happens in the middle is what happens in the middle <laughs> as well but it's a lot about teasing you know it's a good teasing game i mean they're they're, they're latin at the end of the day so they know how to tease and to charm so a lot of what you just said and this is where we're going to it's like the, it's like you knew where I was going to segue. You talk about everything you just mentioned about capoeira sounds exactly like bartending. Um, so yeah. while you've while you've done all this uh, capoeira training and yoga training, uh, traveling a little bit, I'm going to go back a little bit. When did you first start working in bars? Uh, so I started in bars when I was 16, 17 as a bar back. Mm-hmm. Um, I started when I was 15 in kitchen because I was convinced that I was going to become a Cordon Bleu chef. Yeah. That dream died very quickly after a month in kitchens. (laughs) Why did it die so quickly? Uh, Because um, 
I realized, I mean, I was really young and my mum, she always worked in, uh, in, in hospitality as well and catering. And so as soon as I was 15, I told my parents, I was like, I don't want to study. I want to become a chef. I know what I want. Da, 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 this, that, the other. So of course, as parents, they had to do their, their duty and give me a little warning of the harsh life of kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they put me in uh, in a friend's restaurant, which was a Spanish restaurant, um, and it was tapas, like high-end tapas. So it's a lot, a lot of stress and a lot of shouting and a lot of swearing in Spanish. And it was just a lot for me. And the sense that, you know, that just knowing that I had to prepare all, that we had to prepare all of this. And basically most of my job was just peeling potatoes and helping kind of, you know, uh, with cold starters and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And you would never, ever see your, your customer. Right. You know, so you were just under pressure 10 to 12 hours a day for nothing, you know, and it, it was sweaty and it was, it was just like, it's a very harsh environment, as everyone knows. It's not a secret, you know. Well, especially as a 15-year-old. Yeah, yeah. So in the same time as I was doing that, I actually had, uh, I could see the bar from where, where I was uh, placed in the kitchen. And I would look at the bartender who looked extremely fluid to me. Like everything that he did was a bit like capoeira, just like beautiful and constant movement and just like easy there was no shouting there was no like pots and pans just like breaking and you know there was none of that chaos that we had in the kitchen and you could I could see him like basically talking to the customer seeing their you know seeing how satisfied he would be by his job as well by seeing the customer satisfaction of the products that you know we would be giving them and I was like, that's, that's cool. Like, I, I mean, I, and I, it was really funny because I knew straight away that I wanted to explore that world. But obviously, like in my family, as a 15-year-old girl, how do I tell my parents, like, oh, I want to I pursue a career in bartending and, you know, in the nightlife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had to keep it a bit quiet for a while. Um, and then I just started working as a server, back bar, uh, bar back, sorry. And then um, I became bartender in a gastro pub in London uh, as soon as I could. And so from there, you really, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, but for anyone uh-huh. listening, uh, Audrey has one of the most uh, insane bartending resumes that I know of, of someone that I deal with on the regular and like, Really? Uh, well, yeah, and I and and you know, occasionally when you come in to order drinks, I'm always just like in the back of my head. I'm hoping that you order rosé. Um, but <laughs> but you worked at Trailer Happiness in London, correct? I did. And how I long did. ago was that? That was 2012, 2013. Right. So, um, uh, you know, award winning Trailer Happiness, no big deal. <laughs> Sly is like as big of a rock star bartender as possible while still being a totally approachable, really funny, really friendly yeah. guy. Uh, yeah. Do you feel like you learned a lot working with him? I I mean, I was very, very lucky. Uh, wherever I worked in London, uh, Sly is, uh, you know, one of the people that I admire the most. He, um, he was the one who actually offered me the job when we were having drinks at three in the morning in the Pink Chihuahua was Dick Battle Bar mm-hmm. and it was really funny because we were just talking and he was like oh I just bought uh, a new bar well I just bought a bar and I'm going to continue it basically and I was like oh cool and he was like yeah it's a rum bar and I was like oh I love rum uh, and he was like yeah I think you're going to work for me and I was like um, 
sorry. And at that point, I was already working for a famous chef uh, in a hotel. So I was like, I'm, I'm pretty happy where I am. <laughs> and he was like, Australia happiness. And I just remember at that moment, I was pretty drunk. It was almost what time in the morning. And I just fed in love. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you're, te- you're asking me to work at Trader Happiness? And he was like, yeah. And the week after, he came to see me at the hotel. And it was, you know, it was just such a chilling experience. It was incredible. And um, he is, he's incredible because he is a real nerd. <laughs> <laughs> He is the coolest nerd I, I, I know. Um, being able to spend time with him and seeing the amount of time that he spends on research and when he wants to know about something, he needs to become the absolute professional about it. Um, so that is something that I, I learned uh, from him and that nerd can be very cool. <laughs> um, but also the family. The family of trailers, just, it's magical. You know, we, the trailer was our home. We spent way too many hours in there, <laughs> mm-hmm. way too many hours. Um, but it was, it was our home. It was our community. It was. I'm still in touch with quite a few people who would come. Quite a few like customers and the kind of extended community of of trader. I'm still in touch with them. And every time I go to London, whenever I see any of the the rum aficionados and the trailer um, guys, it's it's just magical. And I know that if I go to London and I just show up on a Friday night or something like that, I know that I'll bump into at least five friends. That's a good feeling. Yeah. Where even when you're away from home or back at home, it still feels like home, right? Absolutely. Um, the Absolutely. Ob- the other bar that in my brain and one of the most impactful experiences I've ever had, you weren't on the bar the night I was there, but apparently you were working there at the time was Eau de Vie in Sydney. Yes. Can you, for anyone that hasn't, had the joy of sitting at that bar explain how the workflow works there and the idea that everyone does everything yeah so basically uh when i was working at eau de vie it was weekend shifts when i was already a brand ambassador actually actually um and i would do a lot of hosting and um and serving Mm -hmm. Uh, but yes normally um the so the bartender in eau de vie is the host, is the server, is the chef. Uh, they did uh, like a short, a, a, a short menu of like food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is the alchemist is the is a you know we they they did everything and it was incredible because you would enter that. I mean, honestly, if you looked at the space without the bottles and the tables, it was basically a box, a black box. Uh, but. It was just magical, the fact that they managed to create such an incredible experience and that would make you travel in time and outside of Australia. Like you, you, you would really think that you were somewhere else when you'd enter there because the show, the, how they would approach you and the drinks and, you know, like you would definitely have something that you would have never really thought about drinking when you were there. And someone would be throwing liquid nitrogen around. Always, always. <laughs> it was like an ongoing My favorite thing. game. Yeah. Um, so you I mean, say, I went from throwing fire to throwing nitrogen. So right. yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Just playing with all elements. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to touch on this a little bit before we get too into brand ambassador work. But you and your partner Ignacio have been together <laughs> for a long time now. Yeah. Yes. How did you two meet? We met 
it's going to be 16 years this year uh, in London. And I was quite young. <laughs> and I was out drinking illegally. Shh, don't tell anyone. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and he was working in a shitty bar in Leicester Square. And it was... Um, it's been love at first sight, as cheesy as it sounds. And we've been on and off since then. And now we've been solidly on for five years. Did that have anything to do with why you uh, ended up in Mexico when you were asked to leave Australia? Yeah, I'm homeless otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I've been... I've been traveling since I was 20, basically, and uh, travel traveling is one of my biggest addictions. And uh, I did bartend in London, but also one of the things that I loved about bartending is that I could bartend for a year or two and then travel for six months. And then I could actually take my job to different countries. So that's why I started living in different countries and doing the job I did and then... Uh, I joined Pony Ricard quite soon, sooner than I had anticipated, actually. I still had a lot of travel plans. <laughs> what are some of the countries you visited that really leap out at you or that had, um, you know, like a, a really profound impact on not just you behind the bar, but you as a person as well? Are there places that stick out to you? So many, so many. <laughs> um, Southeast Asia was incredible. I think um, the people... Uh, in, in Thailand really impacted me. In Vietnam as well, you know, if, uh, there was still so much harsh reality about their, their situation and they were so kind and always there to, uh, you know, to share about their culture and their tradition with you just so that you would learn, you know, and that you would uh, know a little bit more. I mean, I remember when I... I I've tried so many crazy things over there, and uh, food and, and, and drinks-wise, I'm saying tried. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so that was incredible. Uh, I think, yeah, Southeast Asia was a bit of a crazy one. I also traveled Latin America backpacking alone uh, for just under a year. Wow. And that was, that was the craziest experience of my life because I was 21, recently out of university, after my first like serious bartending job at Floridita. Um, and all I wanted was to learn about like culture, drink and food. Uh, and yeah, I think the craziest experience I had was probably, oof, I think, I think like, because we, we flew I flew into Venezuela, which was probably not the most clever one because, you know, it's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And then I flew to Colombia, and there it was incredible because it was at the time when Colombia was starting to get a bit safer. But it was so sweet because all the Colombians they were like just very worried about the fact that they knew there was I was a girl traveling alone around Latin America, and um, you know they would accompany me to places and they'd be like, "Hey, oh, you can't take the bus alone," and things like that. And it was it was beautiful seeing. It really opened my eyes growing up in Europe my whole life and traveling around Latin America, seeing how kind people are and how, um, you know, when you have a better understanding of poverty and, and, and hush, the harshness of life, then so much more means in life. Um, so that for me was like the biggest learning that I got. And um, yeah, I think that's it really. <laughs> 
So you've done all this traveling. You've worked at a bunch of places, Florida, O to V, Trailer Happiness. And then, as you mentioned a minute ago, Pernod Ricard sort of happened. Yeah, so I was working. I had worked in in in, a, in Sydney. Sorry, I had worked at uh, Parmenco, which is another cocktail bar over there. And um, there, I was. We we were one of the biggest. Or Maryvale, the group is one of the the biggest accounts for for Parmenco Australia. So we were constantly hosting them for events and all that. And um, and then I stayed in touch with a, a couple of the sales reps and all of that. Um, and so one day, one of the, the colleagues who uh, I knew from London, actually, she moved to Australia as well, and she was working at Pernod Ricard over there. She just told me, send me your CV. And I was like, great, event work for Pernod Ricard. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> and next thing I knew was the brand manager for uh, White Spirits who called me, uh, asking me in for an interview. And um, so I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I called my friend and I said, oh, my gosh, are you crazy? Like, I don't do public speaking. I don't do any of this. And she's like, no, you're going to kid it. Like, you you studied this at school or at university. You love rum and tequila. You love traveling. I mean, stage fright ain't nothing compared to that. So I was like, fuck me. Okay. So, so you yeah. showed up. you showed up expecting to maybe be hired as, like, a promo girl to do events and instead ended up with an ambassadorship. Yeah. More like a bartender for <laughs> events right. than a promo girl, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> e- either way, a, a pretty significant jump in what you were expecting from that job interview. Yeah. And so, so was, and so you started working with Pernod Ricard in Australia initially. I did in 2014, I think 2015. Um, and so I did a year over there and to my surprise, actually, um, my what I thought was going to be the, my biggest challenge was actually um, a massive gift because my boss at the time decided to make me start on a blank slate. So she gave me a computer with very little information, and she asked me to create masterclasses for Australia. She wanted to give it a complete uh, makeover. Wow. Um, so she told me create three to five different types of masterclasses. And I was like, okay. Um, so I did, uh, and it was, it was nice because I was fresh off the, the, the bar, bar life. And, uh, I like to think I'm a little bit creative. And so I did it and, um, very lucky enough, you know, uh, everything I did was shared with having a club international. I uh, created a little passport, uh, which was uh, all of your Cuban classics. So it was based around 10 Cuban classics uh, with like an homage to Floridita, an homage to, to uh, Bodeguita del, del Medio, an homage to Hemingway, so that you would have this little tiny little passport, uh, which was pocket, pocket size, of course, uh, because in Cuba, cantineros, they need to have like a an ID card when they're a cantinero in the, in the Asociación de Cantineros. So it was owed to that as well. Uh, and that was sent back to Havana Club International. And after I had finished that little passport, they decided to create it, um, well, to expand for the different markets around the world because they thought that was best practice. And also I did a sensorial, sensorial um, multi-sensorial tasting where I would kind of pair every rum of our portfolio to something you would touch, something you would smell, 
something you would see uh, and something you would taste so that you could understand these rums in different ways, in different senses. Um, and so that was the two kind of coolest things I really did, I think. <laughs> those, those definitely, I mean, I, I think I've taken part in, you know, similar sort of tastings that uh, you've put forth and organized la- like that. Um, yeah. And then we mentioned, you know, you were uh, politely asked to leave Australia, went to Mexico for a bit, and then you've landed in, yeah. you know, when, when you and I properly met, was it three years ago you moved to Toronto? Yeah. Um, three in a couple months. Three years and a couple months. And with the job moving you from Australia to Mexico to Toronto, and, you know, uh, you've been dedicated to your yoga practice, you've been (laughs) dedicated to Ignacio for 16-ish years, what sort of of things do you do with Ignacio, your partner, to sort of maintain a relationship? You know, we all know that global ambassadors travel all the time and there's a ton of work and you keep weird hours and you're living in a hotel for months at a time. What do you, what do you and Ignacio do to really like stay solid? So it's it's funny because it's the yin and the yang, isn't it? I guess um, when, as you said, like when I'm on the job, I'm on the job at like 200 percent. Yeah. Um, I'm the first one up and the last one to go to sleep, and I I love I love that extreme uh, intenseness of the job when when you're traveling. I'm always the one like going to the sales reps or the brand ambassadors or the bartender. It's like, yeah, let's go for another drink. I have a meeting at eight. It doesn't matter. Well, and you managed to go for a half hour run before you go to your meeting at eight as well. I mean, I used to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the running is. Uh, I have my moments of the running. <laughs> um, so when I am not working, I've actually learned, thanks to Ignacio, how to sometimes switch off. And it's been it's not been easy because um, I think that you you can agree with me that you know when we are passionate about about our job it's very difficult to actually differentiate between personal and and work life. Mm-hmm. So with, um, with thanks to him I guess we do a lot of traveling. We love walking around nature, trekking, hiking, uh, and all of that. So uh, even uh, here we've done quite a few of the national parks. Uh, we have a dog that, uh, who's our best guide. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so we do a lot of hiking. Uh, he also dra- drags me camping, but he's, he's very good at glamping for me. <laughs> uh, and we always make sure we have a bit of rum for, to keep us warm. Of course. Um, and otherwise, we cook a lot. Uh, that's one of our uh, one of our passions that we love. Uh, and I mean, let's I'm, go, I'm not gonna lie. I could not be with someone who doesn't like to eat and drink. So we love going out. We love you know treating ourselves to some of the best restaurants and bars. And you know, I think that's it, really. Okay, I have one more question. We've been talking for just over a half hour now, and you sort okay. of touched on it already. But uh, and I know we could do a whole other hour long podcast about it. But um, you want to talk about your dog? Ooh, what do you want me to say about him? Well, do you want to speak to him? I don't, I don't know if I don't know anyone uh, that loves their dog, especially because their dog is, you know, about the same size as you are. Um, yeah. <laughs> where did you get him? You love you love this dog. What's the deal? What's what's the name? How do you how did you come across the puppy? <laughs> so Jagger is his name. Yeah. 
Uh, and uh, you're lucky you're not on loudspeaker because otherwise he would have uh, opinionated at least five times on this phone call. Uh-huh. <laughs> he is a chocolate lab who weighs, uh, I think it's about 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is turning 10 this month in April. And he is actually Ignacio's dog. So Ignacio got him in Mexico. Yeah. He's Mexican. He speaks Spanish fluently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he loves avocados and he loves uh, tacos. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he's a very big part of, of my life. He's actually probably one of the few things that I I really do share on social media about my personal life. Um, and he's he's magic, especially right now that we're all a little bit lock, in lockdown. I don't know if I can talk about this. Yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. But it helps a lot having uh, a dog who uh, keeps you... Uh, busy. He makes me walk outside of the house at least once a day or twice a day, depending on who takes him out. Uh, but also, it's it really helps in the dynamic of the house, especially you know when you're locked in for five weeks <laughs> with your partner. As good as you want to be, uh, there's always a little bit of tension that'll rise. You know, it, it's nice to have a dog to kind of be a yeah. be a fun little distraction every every day for a little while. Anyway, right? Exactly. And a bit like the yoga, you know, he, I think you learn a lot from dogs and from animals. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it helps a lot. It helps. A, he's helped me a lot as well with, you know, uh, stress and work sometimes. Let's be honest, like the brand ambassador role is amazing, but it's a very intense job. It is. <laughs> So, yeah, he's a big part of my life. Amazing. Okay, Audrey, I've been talking with you long enough. If people want to follow you on social media or keep up with what you and your yoga practice and your dog or maybe have more questions about capoeira, how do they find you? They can find me on Instagram as Audrey Hands or as Havana Hands. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us while we're all locked inside currently. (laughs) Thank you, Josh. Thanks again to Audrey for taking the time to chat. Thank you for finding some time to hang out here. I promise to keep working on these podcasts no matter how long this isolation lasts. And uh, I hope that it gives you something to look forward to. I hope it gives you something to think about. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me at Bartender Atlas on all forms of social media. I'm Josh Lindley. Talk soon. Talk soon.